There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Philly. Welcome back to another episode of Twisted Philly. I'm your host, Dina Marie. There are moments that define a person or even a place. Moments where there are a few seconds, sometimes only a split second, to change course. We all have them. Stopping at a yellow light instead of applying a little more pressure on the gas pedal so we can cross the intersection just as the light turns red. Or not picking up speed and stopping at that same intersection. Maybe speeding through it saved us, or perhaps on a different day it was stopping that made a difference. We all have moments in our lives where we can step outside ourselves and be an audience of our own choices. Sometimes we can see those moments, yet we ignore them. And other times we don't even realize those moments exist because they're infinitesimally small, completely imperceptible to our flawed human eye. Philadelphia has a moment that defined us. It was a window of opportunity where the city made a choice, and that choice was viewed on television screens across the country. It was the moment the city of Philadelphia dropped a bomb on a residential street, and the people involved in the story had much more than a few seconds to pause and consider the choices they were making. Most of the houses on that street were empty. The police contacted residents and evacuated the neighborhood, but one house had 13 people living there. That house wasn't evacuated. It was 6221 Osage Avenue in the Cobbs Creek section of Philadelphia. There were seven adults and six children in the house on the morning of May 13, 1985. And before the sun came up the next day, all but two were dead. The city of Philadelphia dropped a bomb, specifically a satchel bomb, on a row house in Philadelphia. I didn't know what a satchel bomb was, and it really is just what it sounds like. It's a bomb in a bag, or in this case, a satchel. The textbook definition, and yes, I'm reading a quote here because I want to be very clear. The definition is a demolition device primarily intended for combat whose primary components are a charge of dynamite or a more potent explosive such as C4 plastic explosive, a carrying device functionally similar to a satchel or messenger bag, and a triggering mechanism. The term covers both improvised and formally designed devices. A satchel bomb is something that's intended for combat. To me, combat means war. The city of Philadelphia behaved in the fashion of war towards 13 people living in a row house on Osage Avenue. Besides the 11 people killed in the bombing and the subsequent fire that resulted, 61 homes were destroyed and close to 250 people were left homeless in a span of less than 24 hours. The satchel bomb dropped from a helicopter flying low overhead. People watched as a bag fell out of the helicopter and landed on the roof of 6221 Osage Avenue. Reporters covering every moment from the ground felt the earth shake. 
They saw the explosion and they took cover as the street was engulfed in flames. What was it that compelled our city to drop a bomb on a residential neighborhood? What was it about the residents at 6221 Osage Avenue? What did they do that warranted this destruction? And who were they? Their names were John Africa, Raymond Africa, Conrad Africa, Frank Africa and Rhonda Africa, Teresa Africa, Catrice Africa, Zanetta Africa, Phil Africa, Delita Africa, Tommaso Africa, and Ramona and Bertie Africa. They were members of a group of activists known as the Movement, or more commonly referred to as MOVE. And their story starts long before May 13, 1985, when all but Ramona and Bertie died in a blaze that defined our city. It defined the careers of some of the most familiar names in city government, names like Frank Rizzo, Wilson Good, Ed Rendell, men who somehow managed to continue long and lustrous careers while the embers were still burning. This is the story of MOVE. The plan to bomb the MOVE house was reckless, ill-conceived, and hastily approved. Dropping a bomb on an occupied row house was unconscionable and should have been rejected out of hand. For the past four years, they've lived in the Powhatan Village area of West Philadelphia, often running into conflicts with police. There ain't no white and black in this. It's human. It's about human beings. If one baby dies, it's going to be a hell of a summer in Philadelphia. In everything from work habits to child raising, MOVE is revolutionary jury concluded that the dropping of the bomb was a legitimate exercise of police power and that it did not in itself cause the deaths and the property damage. Could you describe the, what you mean by the word the system, please? The system, the establishment, you. Mayor Rizzo finally, after 15 months of confrontation, used the force he threatened all along. The police will be in there to drag them out by the backs of their necks. They're going to be taken by force if they resist. Philadelphia in the 60s and 70s was much like many other parts of the country, embracing a culture of environmentalism, questioning government and the establishment. The first Earth Day began here in Philadelphia. We were a city looking for change, looking to create change, looking for answers that made sense of war and big business and big government, little government, looking for ways to make a difference. And like the song says, you have to start with the man in the mirror. That's really how MOVE started, with one man named Vincent Leopard. Vincent was one of ten children. He grew up near the Palatine section of Philadelphia, and he grew up poor. His parents worked hard to provide for Vincent and his siblings, but it wasn't easy. At a young age, Vincent's mother passed away in the very hospital where she'd given birth to Vincent years before. And this experience shaped his disdain for the system, for what the system was supposed to provide, like protection. Vincent Leopard dropped out of school at 16. He struggled there, he suffered from a learning disability, and really felt as if he'd learned all he could by the time he left. He fought in the Korean War, and he struggled there, too. He didn't struggle performing his responsibilities as a soldier. It was more the idea that this country sent him to a far-off land to kill people he didn't know in a war that had little to do with people here at home, or how they were affected by the culture and systems in place, especially in the city of Philadelphia. Vincent longed for something different, a way to change the world around him. He grew up in a religious household. They had traditional Baptist values, but that wasn't really what shaped Vincent Leopard's philosophy about life. 
He was focused on natural law, on man's neglect of the earth and the laws of nature. To Vincent, the only way to create true change and bring down oppressive systems was to abide by the laws of nature and live in a more natural way. In 1970, Vincent Leopart changed his name to John Africa. It was his desire to rid himself of the trappings of modern society, including a name that no longer meant anything to him, and rebrand himself in a way that honored his heritage while committing to his vision of abiding by natural law. And from here on out, I will refer to him as John Africa. John had an elaborate vision for all aspects of life, ways in which people needed to change their lifestyles to prevent war and destruction, mental and physical illnesses. He wanted to put an end to what he called the impositions of life. And the only way to truly change was, again, in John's words, to cut away from a cancerous lifestyle. In the early 70s, one of the people who listened to John was a professor at the Community College of Philadelphia, a man named Donald Glassy. Donald and John were opposites in so many ways, one white, the other black, one educated, the other struggling with a learning disability, one who grew up poor while the other grew up privileged and became a teacher. As different as Donald and John seemed on the surface, beneath those superficial descriptions were two men longing for change, longing for meaning and a way to impact the world around them. John had a vision but no way to document it. Don was a professor. Who better to capture the words of a philosopher than a scholar? And that's how their friendship began. Late nights in John's apartment by candlelight because John thought electricity and technology were evil. John was espousing his vision and Don furiously wrote to capture what eventually became the guidelines for move. The friendship between Don and John eventually ended in betrayal. But we'll come back to that later. By 1973, people were staying in John's apartment for days to listen to his message. What he lacked in traditional education, he more than made up for in charisma and presence, and people wanted to listen to him. What he said made sense. How could man make the world better when man had turned against the earth? What was so special about man that he believed he was beyond the laws of nature? As peaceful as all this sounds, John Africa wasn't afraid to use more forceful means of communication. And this was evident in his interactions with a local organization, the Community Housing Incorporated. This section of the city in Powelton bordered two colleges in Philadelphia, Drexel University and University of Pennsylvania. And the housing organization worked to secure properties for residents rather than let much of the community be purchased by universities. Basically, the neighborhood was trying to prevent gentrification where poorer black families who'd lived there most of their lives were being pushed out as the universities tried to purchase more and more property. But problems arose when John would use these housing meetings as a forum for his guidelines. That's not what the group was about, and while many members of this group were very liberal and also looking for change, they weren't there to talk about move. The other problem was the maintenance, or lack thereof, in John Africa's apartment. No electricity, a pack of dogs that lived with John, and roaches. The roaches would spread throughout the apartment, and John refused to do anything about it because it went against his belief in natural law. 
Just before matters could get even more heated between John Africa and the residents of his apartment complex, Don Glassy bought half of an enormous old Victorian twin at 309 North 33rd Street. If you've ever driven through sections of West Philadelphia, then you can imagine exactly how the house on 33rd Street in Powelton looked. It was monstrous and beautiful. It was turreted and had a huge front porch. It was three and a half stories tall. There was more than enough room for John and his followers and his dogs and room to grow. But peace on 33rd Street was short-lived. Soon after moving in, John turned off the electricity. He considered these the trappings of modern society, a society that was filled with evil from technology and was an affront to nature. Move does not believe in technology. They use a wood-burning stove for heat and they have no electricity. But they do have cars and they have a telephone. Why? All the answers are in the guidelines, their Bible left by John Africa. The people who followed John and eventually became members of his organization, MOVE, didn't use indoor plumbing. Instead, they used outhouses on the property of their home, and their bodily emissions were cycled back into the earth. Now, I know that may sound repugnant to some, but they were truly living by John's guidelines. They were giving back to the earth and really living off the earth and replenishing the earth in a way that would benefit them with the crops that they grew there on 33rd Street. They were living, breathing, eating, and shitting John's truth. The members of MOVE primarily ate raw foods, although John Africa understood that it took time for the body to adjust to natural ways of living, so it wasn't cold turkey. The members of MOVE lived as naturally as possible, from the clothes they wore to their hair, their hygiene. There are stories of MOVE members being filthy, but that wasn't true. They cared for themselves. They didn't use shampoos or deodorant because those products were full of chemicals. They believed eventually, as their bodies eliminated the toxins from processed food, they adjusted to different means of living where they no longer needed perfumes, dyes, chemicals, and mass-manufactured products. The members of MOVE were from as diverse background as you can imagine. They were professional people who walked away from their jobs to live according to the guidelines. There were families and single people, young and old, and not all members of MOVE were black. There were children in MOVE, too. Some were brought there when their parents followed John Africa, and some were born there. Children who were born at MOVE were delivered via home births without the aid of physicians or modern medicine, and they were healthy. One member in particular, a woman named Sharon Africa, claimed she ran five miles the same day her son, Tommaso Africa, was born. She said she was that fit and healthy as a result of living within MOVE's teachings. MOVE didn't simply confine their principles to the members on 33rd Street. They were activists within Philadelphia. They frequently protested the Philadelphia Zoo because of animals kept in cages. They protested the Board of Education, questioning how children in the city were being taught, unlike their own children who ate raw meat, spent considerable time outdoors learning about nature and living within nature, and were taught exclusively from the guidelines of John Africa. As you could imagine, with protesting came arrests. And the arrests escalated. 
1973, there were only 10 demonstrations by MOVE members and there were no arrests to speak of. Just two years later, MOVE participated in close to four times as many demonstrations and there were over 140 arrests. The members of MOVE were intelligent, they were articulate, and they knew exactly what role Philadelphia police had to play. They knew what would prevent them from being arrested, and they knew what could cross a line where police would be forced to arrest them. Most of the MOVE members who were arrested in the 70s were booked on misdemeanor charges, and these arrests led to more protests. Much of their time protesting shifted from animal rights and education to police brutality, which was a real issue in Philadelphia in the 70s. MOVE claimed their members were being beaten when they were arrested. There's a quote in the book, The MOVE Crisis, which stated, MOVE didn't attack people or the police. MOVE attacked their ways. The more they were jailed, the more they demonstrated. When MOVE members were brought to trial, it was unlike anything the city of Philadelphia was prepared for. Trials were man's law, and MOVE lived by the laws of nature. So they didn't believe in the proceedings in a courtroom, and they didn't respect the proceedings. The judicial system was the system. Everything they stood against, they weren't respected by the police, they weren't respected by judges. They seldom had lawyers because MOVE didn't believe a lawyer who lived and practiced within the cancerous system could truly represent them from a place of their truth. And while much of this may sound incredulous to you, the folks that were part of MOVE truly believed in what they were practicing. They were so strong in their convictions that it wasn't just rhetoric. It was literally the way they lived their lives every day. The testimony during court was an opportunity to share the teachings of John Africa and get their message out to more people. But as a result, they often found themselves being sent back to jail for contempt. To move, they were being punished for their beliefs. And this was a religion of sorts for them. When Reverend Audrey Bronson wants to practice her religion, nobody beats her up. But when MOVE wanted to practice their religion, people started talking about, it's not done that way. There are Catholics and Methodists, evangelists, theologians, you name it. We were the religion of life. Where is it written that we could not have a religion of our own? They were being persecuted for their beliefs because their beliefs caused serious problems on North 33rd Street. By 1976, MOVE had taken over the other half of the twin home in which they lived. Their pack of dogs sometimes numbered as many as 50, and to this day no one knows the exact number of MOVE members who lived there, although it too could have been as high as 50 living in that big old Victorian house with no heat, no electricity, no windows. The property outside was covered in excrement from both dogs and humans. Granted, it was part of the way that MOVE cycled or recycled themselves back into the earth, but it drew rats. Before MOVE relocated to Powelton, the neighborhood associations there were afraid of gentrification, but now they were afraid of the members of MOVE. They were afraid of the less passive and more hostile approach MOVE members demonstrated towards their neighbors when they complained. MOVE members threatened other residents on North 33rd Street. The neighbors claimed they threatened to kill them and kill their families. Now, I share this knowing this is a he said, she said situation. 
Move claimed they were ostracized and purposely attacked because of their beliefs and lifestyle choices and their race, because even though it was a diverse group of people, the majority of Move members were black. Close to a dozen neighbors had stories where they were threatened, harassed, kept awake at night by Move members banging on their doors or shouting at them with bullhorns. And I'm sure there is some truth in both sides of this story. The situation between Move, their neighbors, and the city of Philadelphia worsened. Mayor Frank Rizzo looked at them as un-American. That's not a quote from any book. That's my personal perspective based on PBS documentaries I've watched and what I heard Mayor Rizzo say about Move in those old news clips. I've learned one thing as a policeman. You never underestimate your opponent. You always get in there faster with more than necessary and you overpower them. Move's way of life challenged the norm. No, I would not want to live next to a family with close to 50 dogs and shit everywhere. I know myself. I would be knocking on their door every day to clean that shit up. And I would also offer to help them if they needed it. I would try to get other neighbors to help as well. And that's not what happened. Plus, the battle between Move and the city was about so much more than just their living conditions. The turning point between Move and the city of Philadelphia happened on March 29, 1976. Move was celebrating the release of members who had been jailed during recent demonstrations. They were excited. They were happy. Maybe they were a little too loud for some neighbors on 33rd Street. Philadelphia police show up. They claim they were called to the neighborhood for noise complaints. Move claims their members were followed home from jail by the police. According to an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer from 1976, police stated when they tried to break up the party, they were attacked by Move members. The police stated they were hit with bricks. Philadelphia police and MOVE members were both injured. Three members of MOVE were arrested and charged with aggravated assault against police. Conrad Africa, Jerry Africa, and Robert Africa were all taken to jail. But that wasn't the extent of the altercation on March 29th. MOVE member Phil Africa claimed his infant son, Life Africa, was killed. According to Phil, his wife was holding their son, standing in front of the men of MOVE in an effort to prevent the police from pushing past them, thinking no one would hurt a mother and child, and she was knocked down. Phil claimed both she and the baby were trampled by Philadelphia police. We went upstairs, two inquiry reporters there, and we saw, we were led into a dark room, and we saw what appeared to be the remains of a, a baby. And it was their contention that this baby had been killed in a police raid. Subsequent to that, I uh, introduced a resolution to the city council calling for an investigation. It never took place. And I felt at that time that the move people were being harassed and that it was a racial problem. There was never any corroborated evidence of a baby present outside the home on March 29th. The police denied the allegations. They requested a birth certificate, knowing full well move members didn't go to the hospital when they delivered babies. They asked to perform an autopsy, also knowing a procedure like that violated Move's beliefs. Philadelphia police tried to use modern law, modern medicine, in an effort to disprove Move's claims, which made sense to the city. But it didn't make sense to John Africa and the members of Move. A few months later, the city took a different approach to the problem with Move. Residents of North 33rd Street were constantly contacting police and the DA's office. Move, the city, the neighborhood, it became like a three-legged stool, with each leg a little shorter than the other one, so the balance was always off. And if you sat on that stool, it would slip out from under you. The city announced they would conduct a public inspection of the Move residents. They were bringing police, health inspectors, and social workers so that not only would the living conditions be evaluated, but the physical and mental well-being of the children would be evaluated as well. 
Move's response, they built an eight-foot wall around their property, so there was no inspection. A year later, the city began a siege against Move. Yes, a siege as in a military operation in which enemy forces surround a town or building, cutting off essential supplies with the aim of compelling the surrender of those inside. A fucking siege. The siege lasted almost a year, so here's what happened. In late May 1977, a MOVE member was evicted from his apartment. Not all members of MOVE lived at the 33rd Street address. And he put up a fight, police were called, and he was arrested. Even though this member didn't live at the MOVE house, the members at 309 North 33rd Street marched up and down their front porch, and they were carrying guns. This scared the shit out of the neighbors, so they called the police. 200 police officers were deployed into the Powelton section of Philadelphia. 200 cops on one street in West Philly. The standoff that day lasted nine hours. Move members were arrested on weapons charges. And the interesting fact about those weapons charges is that the weapons that were taken from Move that day didn't function. Sure, they looked scary as hell. They looked like assault rifles. And they were actual guns, but they didn't work. They wouldn't fire and they weren't loaded. That was day one, the official day one of the city of Philadelphia versus MOVE. Mayor Rizzo said there would be constant police presence surrounding MOVE, and there was. Over 100 police officers every day staked out MOVE. It became more and more difficult for members of MOVE to leave the house, to get food for their children. And as hard as it was for some neighbors to deal with the situation, there were some neighborhood groups who wanted police presence, but there were others who were appalled by what was happening. When the siege didn't work, didn't yield the desired results, which basically would have been for move to flee or surrender, the city of Philadelphia got approval from a judge to take the siege a step further and create an actual blockade in the street around move. So think about this. These people, they haven't really done anything. Yes, their lifestyle makes it incredibly difficult, almost impossible to live near them because of the animals and the rats and the shit and the conditions outside their property. It affects property values in a neighborhood where residents are trying to prevent gentrification, trying to save properties for the black community when local universities are looking at this neighborhood and the declining property values, which will make it easier for them to acquire even more property. And that certainly was a byproduct of move living there. They threatened people. They were loud at all hours of the day and night. But I haven't found any substantial reports indicating the city tried to work with MOVE. The city frequently said they couldn't negotiate with MOVE, but none of my research, and it's been extensive, so let me cite my sources since I'm talking about this now. So I mentioned PBS documentaries about MOVE, about the crisis of MOVE within the city, the documentary Let the Fire Burn, hundreds of old Inquirer and Philadelphia Tribune articles from 1970 through 2015, two different books, The MOVE Crisis in Philadelphia by Hiskius Asifa and Paul Wardig, and Let It Burn by Michael and Randy Boyette. And as you know, I have my own personal perspective with this and every Philly story I tell. I have my memories growing up outside Philadelphia. I have a perspective that may have been imposed upon me by adults and the media when I was a child. And I have a new perspective that I gained by learning and asking questions. So through all of that, through months of research and reading and watching and digging and digging again, I didn't see anything that led me to believe the city of Philadelphia had any intention of approaching MOVE with anything other than a clenched fist. In the city's defense, Move had a clenched fist too. But someone has to start. 
This is what I mean when I talk about that moment to pause and consider and choose your actions. Someone has to be the one to approach with an open hand and an open heart. And I believe that should have been the city. Instead, they put up a blockade. There was a group that tried to stand up as the voice of reason that summer in 1978. It was a group of residents that called themselves the Powelton United Neighbors, or PUN. PUN was very much against the strong arm the city used against MOVE. They held press conferences in Powelton to let everyone in the city know they believed the blockade and the significant police presence was dangerous. It was dangerous not only to MOVE, but the police and the other residents in Powelton. In a statement PUN released on June 19, 1977, they said they oppose a police starve-out of MOVE and police harassment of our neighbors. We do this not out of support for MOVE's religion, politics, or actions, but because the threats, rats, and garbage, though they wrongfully infringe on the rights of others, do not justify starvation or massacre of MOVE members, and because the aftermath of such a course would be polarization, heightened racial tension, widespread fear and danger, and probably the destruction of the best features of Powelton as a community. We are an interracial community. United actions by black and white residents have been at the heart of the success of our community. Pun saw what was coming. They tried to stop it, and they couldn't. On March 16, 1978, with the full support of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court behind them, Philadelphia police closed off a four-block section around 307 and 309 North 33rd Street. They used sandbags and snow fencing. That was it. No one went in. No one came out. filed in court to set up a starvation blockade around the headquarters. The courts approved his request. On March 16, 1978, hundreds of cops set up barricades around Moon headquarters and shut up their water to starve Move out. On April 4, 1978, thousands marched around City Hall in protest of the city's actions. People tried to go in. Neighbors from Powelton and other sections of Philadelphia protested the blockade. They tried to cross the blockade. They had bags of food and jugs of water. Every week, Philadelphia residents were arrested for trying to cross the barriers, for trying to bring supplies to the people who had no food, no water, including children, young kids, toddlers, and babies. And the city tried to starve them out. The blockade lasted for almost two months until May in 1978 when the members of MOVE and the city reached an agreement of sorts because it was filled with conflict. MOVE felt harassed by the police. They believed Mayor Frank Rizzo approved police brutality against MOVE because police were allowed to use abusive tactics against their members. And it wasn't just MOVE who felt this way. The Philadelphia Inquirer had done a four-month expose against police brutality in Philly just a few years before this event in 1978. The problem with the agreement between MOVE and the city was there was very little change on the part of the city of Philadelphia and significant change for MOVE. What I share with you now are terms from the actual agreement filed in court on May 5th, 1978. Members of MOVE with outstanding warrants will subject themselves to criminal judicial process. MOVE will turn over to the city whatever arms, gunpowder, explosives that presently are on their premises. After that is done, the city will begin to dismantle the barricades. Once the barricades are dismantled, the city will allow access to MOVE members for food and turn the water back on. MOVE will dismantle the platform in front of their house, 
Move will remove all animals living at the house, and Move will vacate the premises within 90 days. During that time, there will be constant police presence. Both Move and the city signed this agreement, and they both had the support of the Citywide Black Coalition on Human Rights and the Powelton United Neighbors. Move wouldn't be allowed to stay in Powelton, but at least some people wanted to assure their departure was a safe one. Move immediately complied with most of the agreement. Health inspectors evaluated their home, and contrary to what was expected, it was clean inside. Anyone with a warrant against them surrendered, they turned over their weapons, and again, these weapons were found to be inoperable. Philadelphia held up its end of the bargain and tore down the blockade. Then the city told Move they had to take down the fence around the property and turn over their bullhorns to the police. Neither of these were conditions outlined in the agreement. The city was also supposed to help Move find alternate housing, but according to Move's attorney, they did not. Well, I shouldn't say they didn't. The city did make recommendations for new housing. And according to the Philadelphia Daily News in April 1978, all of the properties recommended to MOVE members were considered uninhabitable and wouldn't have passed health inspections. So the city wanted MOVE out of Powelton because the police, the Rizzo administration, claimed the house on 33rd Street was uninhabitable. But recent inspections found the home clean and cared for, of course, except for the garbage and the shit outside, but that was being cleaned up too. MOVE upheld the conditions of the agreement, and in my opinion, which you all know I willingly share, the city tried to pull a bait and switch. So MOVE stayed, and on the 91st day of the agreement, a judge ordered the arrest of MOVE. This was Judge DeBona, the same man who approved the siege and the blockade. The same judge who tried to hold MOVE members in contempt when they complained the police and the city were suddenly interpreting the agreement in a manner other than what both parties agreed to. And by August 8th, the police, the judges, former Philadelphia police commissioner turned mayor Frank Rizzo were done talking. Under the cover of darkness, at 3 in the morning on August 8th, 1978, police began to arrive. They filled vacant lots next to the move house. They surrounded the property. They cleared out neighboring homes and apartments. There were mounted police on horses. There were armored trucks, and I don't mean an armored police truck. I mean a Philadelphia city dump truck. Police Commissioner O'Neill had a city dump truck retrofitted with steel plating. O'Neill considered this a protective personnel carrier, and it was intimidating as fuck. He had four objectives that day. Thank God, number one was to get the kids out. Number two was to protect his men. The third was to protect the women, and last were the male members of MOVE, hoping to remove them safely from the house. At a little after 6 a.m., a member of the police civil affairs unit called out to move over Bullhorn while the dump truck and other construction equipment sat nearby the front of the house. We have in our possession writs of attachment, bench warrants for the occupants of 307 to 309 North 33rd Street. These are court orders issued by Judge Fred DeBona on August 2nd, 1978 who has ordered the police to take you into custody. Each of you was ordered to surrender immediately. Leave your weapons and come out with your hands extended over your head. You have three minutes to walk to the street. Move didn't surrender. Officer Powell from the Civil Affairs Unit took the bullhorn again and called out, You have not surrendered. We are proceeding to tear down the fence. And the dump truck plowed forward. It took out the eight-foot fence along the front of the property. It took out the platform in front of the house as men stood on the platform, unarmed men. 
One of those men was Delbert Africa. Delbert came to Philadelphia from Chicago. He'd been a member of the Black Panther organization, and he left because he felt the Panthers weren't really driving change, not real, true, civil and social change in their communities. Delbert was filmed for a PBS documentary about MOVE, and I was moved by his words, his realization that revolution takes many forms, and it can start from within. I was indoctrinated with a philosophy in the Panthers that revolution only meant picking up a gun and going out and murdering somebody. I never thought that revolution consisted of revolutionizing myself to get away from the things that caused me to want to revolt. Delbert was one of the unarmed men on the porch when the dump truck took it out. The men fled inside, and then a cherry picker construction truck made its way up the lawn and took out the windows. The glass had long ago been replaced with wooden slats so the members of MOVE could have constant fresh air, and the crane ripped out the slats and the casing, leaving gaping holes in the house. It looked like something bombed the property, but the bombing wouldn't actually happen for another seven years. At about 7 a.m., Officer Powell called out over the bullhorn again. Uniformed officers will enter your house for the purpose of taking you into custody. Any resistance or use of force will be met with force. And still, MOVE didn't surrender. They didn't respond. After a half hour of waiting, Officer Powell informed MOVE they would flood the property. Philadelphia firefighters were part of the contingency on North 33rd Street that day, and they shot water cannons into the house. The water that was coming in the basement was so strong that was taking the bricks off the wall. I've seen videos of this. I've seen video of much of went down on August 8th. I don't know who's right and who's wrong in the eyes of the law. I know in my heart you don't show up to negotiate with a few hundred police and water cannons and an armored dump truck. The entire scene that day was a complete clusterfuck. Just before 8 a.m., someone shouted, they've got guns, and they meant move. A shot was fired. The Philadelphia police claim move opened fire first. Move claims it was the other way around. In the volley of gunfire, 52-year-old James Ramp was shot and killed. He was a police officer who was just a few months shy from retirement. Four other officers and firefighters survived serious injuries. Officer William Krause was shot in the arm and the stomach. He never again regained use of his arm, but he survived. Officer Charles Stewart took gunshots to the shoulder and the neck. Officer James Hessen survived gunshot wounds to the chest. Firefighter John Welsh survived wounds to the neck and the hand. And two firefighters, Robert Sned and Robert Lintine, took shotgun pellets to the forehead. Almost as soon as it started, the gunfire stopped. Children appeared in the broken basement windows. There were toddlers and babies, little kids climbing out of the basement, women with babies in their arms, some of them covered from blood, from whatever injuries other MOVE members sustained in the gunfire. Last to crawl out of the basement was Delbert Africa. He was unarmed. He crawled out with his arms out at his side. I've seen the video. His palms were open. And although Philadelphia police say he was armed with a knife, he wasn't holding anything. As it turned out, the police acted with precision and restraint. One of the MOVE members came out the window with a cartridge case in one hand, a clip, and with a knife in the other, where he was hit on the top of the head with a steel helmet and was taken into custody. That's what you're referring to. Police took him into custody. They hit him over the head with a riot helmet. They pushed him to the ground. They beat him. First one officer, then two, then three. They kicked the shit out of him. 
They beat him and they broke his jaw while he was on the ground. They took the rage and frustration and sadness over Officer Ramp out on Delbert, Africa. I watched the video of the beating. It was like watching Rodney King, years before anyone knew Rodney's name. But the video of Delbert, Africa never went anywhere. There was no social media. There were no cell phones. Eleven MOVE members were arrested, charged, and convicted in the murder of Officer James Ramp. They were sentenced to anywhere between 30 to 100 years in jail. Here's the thing about the case against MOVE. Officer Ramp was killed by a bullet to the back of his head. He was in front of the MOVE house. He was facing the MOVE house. The DA, who was Ed Rendell, and eventually went on to become governor of Pennsylvania from 2003 to 2011, was never able to prove which member of MOVE fired the gun that killed Officer Ramp. The DA couldn't actually prove anyone fired a gun from the MOVE house. There was witness testimony that the first shots rang out from the basement of MOVE, yet there were other witnesses who claimed the shots came from across the street where police were stationed. When paraffin tests were conducted to detect gunshot residue on the hands of MOVE members, there was no evidence anyone fired a gun. But the DA blamed that on water in the basement, saying that made those tests impossible and inconclusive. MOVE members were saturated with water. There was next to no evidence to collect because by 2 p.m. on August 8, the entire house had been razed to the ground. It was a pile of rubble. At a press conference that afternoon, Mayor Rizzo suggested the state bring back the death penalty, and he offered to pull the switch himself on an electric chair. He blasted the press for what he believed was their pro-move position, which made the cop's job even harder. District Attorney Rendell spoke at the press conference, too. He applauded the police for the restraint they demonstrated throughout this ordeal, although once he saw the video of Delbert Africa's beating, he charged the officers with assault. But eventually, those charges were dropped. This was Philadelphia at the end of the 70s, at what many people believe was the end of MOVE. But it wasn't. Some members were in jail for the rest of their lives for murder. Others were in jail for minor charges stemming from the incident on August 8th. Some were looking for a new place to live in peace, to practice the teachings of John Africa and be left alone. Some left for other states. Many of the remaining members eventually wound up living in a row house on the 6200 block of Osage Avenue in West Philadelphia. This is where part one will end for now, and we'll pick the story back up in the next episode, which I promise will be out within the next 24 hours. And in episode two, we'll talk about what happened on May 13, 1985 the day the city let Philadelphia burn. The plan to bomb the move house was reckless, ill-conceived, and hastily approved. Dropping a bomb on an occupied row house was unconscionable and should have been rejected out of hand. For the past four years, they've lived in the Powhatan Village area of West Philadelphia, often running into conflicts with police. There ain't no white and black in this. It's human. It's about human beings. If one baby dies, it's going to be a hell of a summer in Philadelphia. And everything from work habits to child raising, move is revolutionary. The grand jury concluded that the dropping of the bomb was a legitimate exercise of police power and that it did not in itself cause the deaths and the property damage. Could you describe the, what you mean by the word the system, please? The system, the establishment, you. Finally, after 15 months of confrontation, used the force he threatened all along. 
the police will be in there to drag them out by the backs of their necks. They're going to be taken by force if they resist.